0: Hello everybody, it's the Bible Geek, and I'm Robert M. Price, your host. I sure do have a bunch of questions to get to today, and uh going to do that in a minute, but I wanted to uh, just preface this with uh, something about Patreon. I- I'm assuming everybody by now knows what that is, right? It's this great... where we can do what they used to do in the Renaissance, have people uh, who are interested in the work of a creator um, patronize them, right, in the classic sense, and uh, make it possible for us to do the stuff that you are interested in that we do that uh you know there's so much uh, stuff that has to be done in in a day uh that isn't creative that's just got to do to keep the lights on and so on that um the more we can uh alleviate that uh that burden not, not that it's inherently tough stuff but you know uh, those necessities the more time there is to uh to do the creating and um And so there's this this terrific thing that that allows for that. It gives you a way to uh, easily make a pledge of support. Uh, And there are different ranks, different grades, different levels of giving with different rewards for them. And and I want to (laughs) explain what those are in a minute. There's some kind of funny about them. But uh, I would just like to give you a little more idea relating to my own situation that uh, um, might throw a little light on what I am seeking on Patreon. Uh, Many of you are uh, uh, patrons already. Um, The uh, endeavor I've embarked on here to try to uh, keep genuine, uh, higher critical Scholarship on the Bible is uh, uh, so important these days because of the sad state, as I view it, of biblical scholarship. Uh, there, there, there. Of course, are loads of fundamentalist evangelical seminaries and the like, where the Bible is intensely studied, but through the lenses of a kind of restricting theology, you know, the the assumption of deadly, when in my opinion that the Bible is infallible and inerrant and uh, you got to do whatever it says to do and believe whatever it says to believe, and, uh, and the irony being that since a good bit of it is uh, undoable and unbelievable, you wind up uh, twisting the text to make it more manageable in its assertions and its demands and uh, if you're going to do that why even study it at all and it's sort of opportunistic and so you know that's just that's what a lot of us came from right we we studied it so much and we wound up echoing what uh, Jesus says in superstar I look for truth but find that I get damned you come to the crossroads where you figure look I, I it's either my faith or my uh thirst to uh, understand this book because it is so fascinating and then many of us have decided uh, okay I'm I'm going with curiosity rather than that which stultifies it and and so the the kind of study of the bible done in uh, those settings conservative ones isn't really what we're looking for, it doesn't satisfy us. But then on the other hand, you know, you might say, well, aren't there loads of uh, liberal uh, seminaries and so on? Well, yeah, but uh, they have less and less interest in the Bible. Um, they're more and more political, and um, in fact, and often you have in them, as I've seen, like the worst of both worlds you have a kind of sunday school pietism and and a uh, radical political stance Uh, of the left I mean of course you may well have the radical political stance of the right in the fundamentalist schools right? Uh, but uh, it doesn't matter on either side the Bible becomes a kind of an instrument uh, of propaganda Uh, there's something uh, sometimes wittingly cynical about it uh, like we want to get the pew potatoes to to behave in a certain way even to vote a certain way so we're going to invoke the Bible Uh, on behalf of that uh, to me, that that uh, is again just poisoning the well. I mean, you know, by now I have very conservative uh, political views, more conservative than most of you. But I'm trying to keep the heck off of the Bible geek because it's just not about that. Uh, my uh, political views have nothing to do with the Bible, uh, and um, it's it's again this kind of strange uh, authoritarian view. Well, I got to do what the Bible says, that even makes that seem like an issue. Uh, to me, the, the Bible has nothing to do with my political views any more than the Iliad and the Odyssey or the Volks, uh, the Volsunga Saga does. And uh, I'm not interested in the Bible for the sake of its use for something else, uh, even moral edification, as good a thing as that is. Uh, here in in the the laboratory of biblical criticism, it's just good old intellectual curiosity about this fascinating cultural artifact but as I say, you're not really getting much of that it's, it's too interested, as Kierkegaard said it, What's what we call engaged scholarship often results in the woodworker leaning too heavily on the saw and I like that, uh, that metaphor I, I'm trying not to do that and I think that uh, virtually all of you must have that a sense of it, or you wouldn't be listening to The Bible Geek and asking questions about it. And so what I am offering and trying to communicate and trying to help keep alive is the kind of study that of the Bible that is very difficult uh, to find anymore. I mean, you can read and you should read all these great books that are available, but I find an awful lot of those are tinged and distorted in the same way uh, you you uh, wind up thinking yeah things haven't changed much since Albert Schweitzer when scholars were reconstructing a historical Jesus in their own image and um, so I think uh, the kind of discussion we have here uh, is is very important and there's fewer and fewer opportunities for it similarly uh, the Bible geek which has its own uh, listener discussion page separate from my mouth and off uh, has become a kind of community uh, of kindred spirits or the like-minded or whatever you want to say. We're all interested in the same sort of thing and um, there is no price tag for membership in it in the sense that um, you don't have to spout some viewpoint. As I've said many, many times uh, it is none of my business what anybody believes, and I'm not even interested in, in knowing it, uh, and yet I am interested in he- sharing the stories of Bible Geek listeners who uh, have come at this thing from uh, a, a background of puzzlement or religious repression, uh, and uh, and that's why I encourage uh, Testimony Time uh, to uh, let other people know, hey, I'm, I'm not the only one uh, that feels this way again the goal of the bible geek is not to to separate anybody from their faith but but uh, many of you are interested in this kind of thing because you have had trials with it in the past and uh, so i think it's it's great to have that kind of mutual support and affirmation well uh the This I say there's no price tag, and that's why I've always kept the the Bible geek free and not not had it conditional on donations, though I have not hesitated to uh, uh, ask for your help uh, financially. But Patreon is really perfect for that. And it uh, fosters this sort of community in, in a different way. Uh, it enables me to share certain benefits with uh people that that are not just thrown out there because in in uh giving and making the monthly pledge you're enabling myself and my wife, Carol, to do more to uh, make this kind of scholarship and communication available. There's a lot of things that uh, I'm trying to do and Carol is trying to do. It's souping up the program uh, of the Bible Geek and the newly uh, resurrected human Bible that uh, will require better equipment, more sophisticated equipment, and at some point um, compensating people for doing some of the technical and promotional stuff we cannot do. Uh, Or, you know, just because, in my case, a lack of uh, grasp of of these these various things. But uh, also, uh, in Carol's case, the time element. If we could... uh, Concentrate solely on all of these nifty things. You you would see this uh, this increase in the utility of, of the Bible geek and its uh, uh, aligned uh, um, adjacent uh, ministries, if you want to call it that. Uh, endeavors like publication of books. Uh, I'm always coming out. With books from small presses, uh, and uh, and uh, and more and more getting into publishing my own stuff and and related things like the collection of uh, Tillich essays, the ground of being, and uh, there are other ones that that are getting close to ready, but there's the money and the time element, and uh, there the various other things, and it's uh, it is a uh, an anchor around us to to do mundane job like things. Nothing wrong with them. Uh, not hesitant to do them in their own right, but it's just you know priorities. Uh, you you want the um, the liberation from such things in order to to make more of a going thing because we have no organization. Uh, we beyond uh, Mythicist Milwaukee, which uh, just so generously uh, does some. Um, some formatting and editing work. I mean, it's, uh, they're really our producer, but that's volunteer and it shouldn't be necessarily. Uh, and, uh, and so the, the, we'd like to, to be able to, to make it into more of an operation. Uh, let's see. I also want to tell you uh, about the, uh, the, uh uh, ranks of of giving, if you want to call it that, uh, we just have organized this more. Here's what what we're doing s- thus far. The the lowest rank uh, is that of initiate. Uh, this is if you give um, a uh, a dollar or or more, and uh, this of course gives you access to the uh, the lectures i post and uh, things like that uh, i uh, will acknowledge you gratefully uh, with a shout out on uh, uh, the next episode of the bible geek after you make a pledge and uh, your your name will appear on our uh, website Well, the next tier is that of Acolyte. This is uh, where you're donating five bucks a month or or more. And um, you get the benefits I just enumerated and a uh, a nifty uh, handwritten postcard featuring the great caricature of me as the Bible geek that you've probably seen. I just sent out a batch of those the other day. Uh, Then uh, for... uh, Uh, $10 a month pledge. You are a hierophant. Uh, No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Am I getting this wrong? Probably am. No no I so nearly skipped the mystagog. Yes now that's the I'm sorry that's the $10 uh, tier and there I will autograph uh, some books of mine for you if you want to send them to me or if you want to buy them from me I do have a few of them available. Uh, the Hierophant is the $25 rank uh, and you can tell all your friends you're a Hierophant and uh, here I will dedicate an episode of the Bible geek to you and your quest or a topic of your choice, so you'd get the, the whole time on that. Uh, let's see, should you uh, deign to become a patron at 50 smackers a month, and, and there are some, uh, you would become a hierarch, right, and uh, this would in, entitle you to a once-a-month Google Hangout uh, with me, and uh, that, that'd be a lot of fun. I know I've been promising this for a while, but uh, and it hasn't materialized, but that's largely because of the reasons I, I just gave you. Uh, difficult to, to spare the time so far. I want to be able to to do that. Should you decide to become a magus, uh, that'd be $75 bucks, uh, or more a month. Somebody has done that, believe it or not. Uh, Here you could choose between a one-hour telephone conversation with me or a one-hour Google session. I can't quite get Skype to work. Again, I don't know what the heck I'm doing on the tech stuff, and that's why I need help. Um, Should there be uh, anyone that wants to pledge a hundred or more, uh, that would uh, make you... Uh, an illuminatus and um uh, you could uh, join me and my wife carol for a vip dinner with drinks in a restaurant of your choice <laughs> assuming you're around raleigh north carolina right uh, and uh that that'd be a lot of fun I've, I've done that before with uh listeners and it's it's great um then uh, should you really want to part with the smackers you could become an ipsissimus where it's um uh, uh the uh, even better than the uh, previous oh you know I'm sorry yeah i, I will acknowledge you in uh, by name in my next book and uh, so forth and and generally this thing with the uh the, the spending time uh, with with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Geek. I want to point out I've enjoyed meeting a bunch of you at different events that uh, I've uh, been invited to, like debates and lectures and so on. I find myself doing less and less of that. I, I um, traveling is not my favorite thing though I don't mind it, but I'm I'm not really doing very much of that e- even in the Lovecraft area. Uh, And uh, so uh, but I would be willing to do it if you would uh, like to have Carol and myself come out to lead a a discussion group with you and any Bible geek friends or people similarly inclined. And uh, so there's and there's other things in the future I'd like to do, like uh, has been suggested for some years having a kind of uh, Bible geek scholarly symposium where people would present and discuss papers. Boy, would that be loads of fun. Uh, So uh, these are some things to think about. And and, uh, I should just point out uh, that if every Bible geek listener felt able to pledge a one dollar a month uh, thing that that would really be a help because luckily there are many of you and uh, if you find this sort of thing distasteful I apologize for that but I think it is a very helpful means to further the uh, the goals of uh, the Bible geek and those who listen to it so please think about that I uh, I appreciate your attention on it and Shall we uh, then get into some uh, Bible Geek questions? I don't see any reason why not. Uh, let's see, boy, I, I've uh, got a bunch to get through. What fun. Uh, this is from uh, a genius friend of mine, a Charles Ensminger, who was a Methodist pastor and had the dubious distinction of being a uh, student of mine at Drew University And uh, in years gone by. And uh, I've published uh, a couple of his articles in the Journal of Higher Criticism. A real sharp guy. I remember once he invited me to speak about not. Uh, Nag Hammadi uh, documents to an adult study group at uh, a church he used to pastor in New Jersey. And while I was discussing uh, holding forth, uh, pontificating on uh, the um, Nag Hammadi Apocalypse of Paul, you know, those two or three different documents with the same title, um, I suddenly realized something about the text I never had that it never mentions Jesus and Paul is the revealer and the redeemer. Anyway, uh, I owe a lot to my uh, pal uh, Charles and his um, he's been waiting a long time for this question to be dealt with. So here he is. uh, uh, In studying the oracles of Zechariah chapters 9 through 14 I was struck by the remarkable familiarity I had hearing the words. I had not really spend any time reading this part of Zechariah, but I was familiar with the fact that the gospel according to Matthew utilized Zechariah, in, particularly this, sorry, in particular the story of the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, 1-9, where the author insists upon placing Jesus on two animals as he rides into Jerusalem. Uh, What caught my attention was the fact that the story of Judas in the gospel, according to Matthew, was seemingly prefigured in Zechariah as well, or perhaps more to the point, Matthew utilizes Zechariah as a means to prophetically prefigure Judas' story. In Zechariah chapter 11, the prophet, presumably Zechariah, but not necessarily, given the likelihood that Zechariah 9 through 11, 12 through 14, and Malachi 1 through 4, once constituted an anonymous eschatological appendix to the shorter prophetic works, that boy is that fascinating, is instructed to become the shepherd of the flock that is quote, doomed to slaughter. After finding the job too frustrating because of his rejection as shepherd, Zechariah 118 8-10, the prophet turns to the people who were quote, "...traffickers in the sheep," unquote, likely a reference to either the political and religious leaders or perhaps more likely the Ptolemaic rulers, and says to them, pay me what seems fair or doesn't, and they pay out thirty shekels of silver, which is also, perhaps ironically, the cost of the life of a slave, according to Exodus 21-32. Then the Lord instructs the prophet to throw the silver into the treasury." the parallel with judas is in his asking the chief priests what will you give me the payment of course is thirty pieces of silver and that's only in matthew right the other gospels don't give the amount Jesus then remarks, after the Last Supper, that all the disciples will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, a quote from Zechariah 13.7. This quote in Zechariah is hard to pinpoint, as it seems to be a different shepherd from the ones mentioned in chapter 11. However, it is in keeping with the role of the prophet in chapter 11 who is sent to shepherd the doomed flock. The prophet in Zechariah does as instructed, destroying three unknown and unnamed shepherds, but then in frustration uh, walks away and symbolically breaks his two staffs, or staves, I suppose, named Grace and Union. Returning to Matthew, Judas then takes the thirty pieces of silver and tries to return them, return them to the priest's who refuse it. Upon their refusal, Judas throws the silver into the temple, quite reminiscent of Zechariah 1113, So I took the thirty shekels of silver and cast them into the treasury. While all this seemed quite intriguing, I was stunned to read that the word treasury in Zechariah can also be translated as the potter, in fact, uh, I forget which is which, but it's treasury and the Hebrew and the potter and the syriac or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, the reason I bring that up is that according to Matthew, the priests take the 30 pieces of silver Judas threw back, and uh, but with the 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field. Some references in Matthew 27 point to Jeremiah 18, 1 through 3 as the source for the potter reference, and that might be, but Matthew doesn't need to leave Zechariah for the reference to the potter. This seems to me to be too much of a coincidence to not think Matthew was retelling Zechariah 11 as the story of Judas, but utilized it to portray Judas not as a righteous prophet as Zechariah 11 implies, but as a betrayer who, though doing the work and will of God, was not privy to that fact. Interestingly, the other Gospels do not draw such a rich narrative for Judas as Matthew and Luke acts. uh, envisioning an ending for Judas where the 30 pieces were not returned, though Ju- remember in Luke, uh, in the book of Acts he took the money and bought a field with it, you know <laughs> wait a minute, I thought he got rid of it, uh, though Judas does purchase a field with the money which echoes Matthew slash Zechariah but without the explicit connection because you remember what happens in uh, in Matthew, they take the money he tossed back to him and buy the potter's field for burying indigents, whereas in Acts it clearly implies Judas himself bought a piece of real estate. Okay, William Classen, in his book Judas, dismisses this connection, saying that there might be some connection between Matthew and Zechariah around the 30 pieces of silver, but, quote, the message of the Zechariah story surely does not apply here. End of quote, Klaus in page 98, he dismisses any connection that I seem to find rather intensely, even though he does say, quote, that Matthew draws on Zechariah, which he translates directly and freely from the Hebrew to suit the application he wants to make, is not in doubt, unquote, page 164. Yet, Classen seems to reject the idea that Matthew is actually utilizing Zechariah in an attempt to combine traditions of a betrayer, probably drawn from Mark, with a biblical prophecy, which is a penchant of Matthew, while arguing that Matthew is freely interpreting Zechariah. I'm not sure you can have it both ways, but I will say that Classen's book does still have some amazing insight and some great points to it that draw out possibilities about the character of Judas that most would overlook. On the other hand, Frederick Murphy in his book Apocalypticism in the Bible and Its World does point out the connection between the Matthew and Zechariah tie for the story of Judas and seems to mention it as a matter of fact. I was curious, then, if there are others who have made more of the matthew zachariah connection, because it seems to me that Zechariah is the main palette from which Matthew paints his portrait of the Passion of Jesus. Which is the eminent geek? Uh, well, it, I see no room for doubt about the fact that everything Matthew has added uh, comes from Zechariah, not from historical memory of Judas in fact it's because so little is said about Judas uh, that he has to resort to this just as the the crucifixion account in mark is so sparse that matthew has to beef that up with a passage from the third chapter of the wisdom of solomon uh, he, he didn't know what happened nobody did because nothing happened but uh, Uh, So he's got to flesh out the skeletal story. And um, so what's the... uh, and where did the idea of the betrayer come from? Well, I think Frank Kermode and others uh, are correct on this—that somebody misunderstood the uh, original Pauline statement that uh, he was handed over for our sins, delivered up by God. But the word paradidomi, uh, handed over, it can also be uh, translated as betrayed. So somebody figured, okay, he was betrayed. Well, now who done it? Well, they they decided to pick the name Judas because by this time they were thinking that Jews en masse had betrayed Jesus. So Judas becomes an incarnation of of, uh, the Jewish people, understood as Christ rejecters and all that nonsense. Uh, I mean, like, well, didn't they reject him? No, that's a pejorative way of putting it. I mean, let's assume there was a historical Jesus and that the... uh, Sanhedrin did uh, see to it that he was executed. That's hardly reminiscent of, of all Jews. Come on. Uh, a bunch of roustabouts uh, that are uh, clamoring for the release of Pilate. Are they eager to, to have Jesus killed? No, they just want Pilate off the hook, right? And and because Jews in general didn't join the sect of Jesus doesn't mean they rejected Jesus. I mean, think of it in in real historical sociological terms, right? Um, I mean, most people most Christians obviously did not accept Reverend Moon as, uh, uh, fulfilling the second coming of Jesus. Did they reject him or do they just not sign up there? There's a big difference. Uh, and, um, and so on and so on. I mean, do, do Protestants reject Pope Francis or are they just not Catholics, right? That's not the same thing. Anyway, um, There was so little to say about Judas because he wasn't even a historical character, or if you think he was, all we would really know about him is that he did hand Jesus over, Uh, but um, uh, he's vilified more and more, and uh, I think Clausen only wants to see less of a connection with, between Matthew and Zechariah because he would like to retain some of that stuff as part of the picture of the historical Judas. It's a lost cause. Once you see the literary roots of um, of the Judas character, y- you got to apply Occam's razor. There being a historical Judas is just a superfluous fifth wheel of an explanation. And uh, so, uh, good good question. Yeah, that's a fascinating topic. Uh, Ken Fontaine says, Barbara Thiering's theory, actually it's a pun but hard to relate without explaining, which I guess I'm about to do, he says, Barb's, quote, theory, T-H-I-E-R-Y, That's a good one. But anyway, Barbara Thiering's theory that Jesus and John are in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, they're referring to them, uh, seemingly relies on the dating of the scrolls. If the scrolls were to represent earlier versions of what would eventually evolve into Christianity, what objections could be used to debunk this notion? Just so I'm clear, the Messiah was expected for a while before Jesus, and just because the final publication came out in the first century, what would prevent the fact that Jesus and John lived a hundred or two hundred years earlier, and it just took a while for the theology to take hold? Also, uh, if you could speak to the notion of more than one Jesus type or Jesus Christ as a title rather than an individual, it seems... Uh, yeah, that'd be good. It seems some earlier writings aren't so specific regarding whether they're talking about Jesus Christ as a specific individual or Jesus Christ as a figure of reference. Uh, that's that's really interesting. You know... Uh, Well, I believe what uh, Barbara Thiering does is to say that the BCE dating of the scrolls was bogus, just as Robert Eisenman does. I mean, they they don't have much in common, but uh, they agree on that. And uh, you kind of wonder if, once again, there's a theological thumb on the scale with this, right? That, uh, oh boy, Jesus, uh, the stuff in the scrolls is uncomfortably like uh, Christian material and uh but we don't want to say that, uh, oh, God forbid, that uh, John the Baptist might have been the teacher of righteousness. I mean, it kind of looks like he might have been, but, oh, boy, that wouldn't be very orthodox. So uh, they must be talking about somebody uh, over 100 years earlier. Uh, who knows, right? But uh, the scrolls are notoriously and intentionally ambiguous. They're written in cipher language, basically. Um, but uh, suppose... Barbbitering is correct about Jesus being the so called wicked priest and um uh, uh John the Baptist being the teacher of righteousness, but the earlier date is correct that's what I think you're saying, and uh that would dovetail very nicely with the work of g r s. Mead, the great theosophist scholar uh who wrote this. Uh, unbelievably interesting book, Did Jesus Live 100 Years B.C.? <laughs> because there are traditions that place him way back there. Uh, I've talked about that a bunch of times. So, I mean, I, I would say, I never thought of it the way you've put it, but uh, th- that's that's very good and well worth thought. Uh, maybe the uh, the Jesus thing, I mean, keeps getting updated, right? And uh so uh yeah that that's quite an interesting innovation. Now what about uh, whether Jesus was a title like messiah that's been suggested and in fact I've thought uh, of that uh, I've I've expressed the view in oh uh, well, I guess in um deconstructing Jesus that and and later uh, due to my initial narrower reading, I guess, I found out that there had been people that said this before. I mean, it's hard to come up with anything new under the sun by way of theories. That um, Theudis the Magician, so-called, and uh, the Egyptian Messiah mentioned by Josephus and from there copied uh, in the book of Acts, that these guys were like returned Joshua's, because uh, the one said he would dry up the Jordan, as Joshua had done, and the other one said he would make the walls of Jerusalem fall as Joshua did with uh, Jericho, right? And so there, it looks like that this would fit into the belief of some Samaritans that when Moses predicted in Deuteronomy that there would be a prophet like him who would arise and should be uh, obeyed as they had obeyed him, that that's Joshua. They The Samaritans have their own very different book of Joshua, too. And, um, and so they—now, I'm thinking that originally the Samaritan belief held that— th- Deuteronomy was not making a prediction for very far in the future at all, uh, but that uh, he meant his immediate successor, Joshua. He's the one that God will raise up as a prophet like Moses and who must be obeyed. But uh, it, it, and we know Samaritans. In later centuries, came to believe that Moses himself would be that prophet, a second coming of Moses. But you you wonder with this thing with Judas and uh, and the Egyptian, if there was another form of this belief current that uh, it would that it was Joshua, all right, but that he would be a, 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 an eschatological prophet and that that's who these guys thought they were. And, you know, um, Jesus is just the Latin version, Jesus, the Greek version of Yeshua or Joshua. And so it remains highly speculative, and that's the bane of, of New Testament scholarship, that so much must remain speculative um and when you say something is highly speculative it uh it implies it's improbable but only because of the fragmentary nature of the evidence doesn't mean you can rule out something that is highly speculative but you just have to say well this hypothesis has so and so amount of evidence this one has more this one has less and uh you you really have to leave it at that because um all historical judgments are necessarily provisional and tentative but yeah that is uh, a very plausible hypothesis just reading uh, david chumney's book jesus eclipsed uh, and uh, i have a review of it uh, on amazon as of the other day and while i disagree with some of his conclusions it's a real good book and he he uh emphasizes very strongly that uh, if you know well enough to rank um, gospel materials as uh, possible versus impossible, plausible versus probable, then you have no business constructing your historical Jesus based on merely plausible notions. Uh, And, uh, of course, that's what loads of them do, right? And uh, so you don't want to be dogmatic about it, even if it would uh, come in pretty handy to do it. Yeah, all right. Thank you, Ken. This from Chuck Blair in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, By the way, can any Utahns out there tell me, if my hunch is correct, that Utah is named for the Ute Indians Or the Paiutes, unless they're the same thing. I've always been curious about that. Anyway, he says, I recently saw a documentary espousing the hypothesis that Christianity was invented by the Flavians, you know, the Flavian dynasty of Roman emperors, in an effort to create a tamer, more peaceful version of the Messiah prophecy, which was more friendly to Rome you know, more so than the zealots and all those guys. This view holds that Jesus never existed but was a type and that the Gospels were written by Philo of Alexandria, Flavius Josephus, and others under the sponsorship of Vespasian and Titus. According to this hypothesis, a much truer view of the period and prophecy uh, is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, as they did not pass through the Roman filter. Contributors to this documentary include Timothy Freke, F-R-E-K-E, that is how one pronounces it. I kind of prefer to say Freka, but uh, he call, pronounces it Freke. D.M. Murdoch, or Acharya S., uh, Kenneth Humphreys, Uh, Robert Eisenman, Rod Blackhurst, Joseph Atwell. um, Do you have an opinion on this view? Yeah. By the way, I don't understand Eisenman to hold this view. In fact, I think his view is an alternative to what you've described, which is Joseph Atwell's view. Um, Eisenman initially made this clear that uh, a story of a an ostensible Jewish Messiah who tells you to do what Roman soldiers tell you, right? If, if he forces you to carry his uh, field pack for a mile, which legally they could do, why don't you carry it too? Uh, and uh, Jesus has disciple a disciple who is a tax gatherer, namely a Collaborator with rome and uh and and so forth he and he's not political at all right and and all this this uh and especially once you get into paul. This doesn't really sound like Jewish messianism as we see it see it played out in Josephus with guys like Theudas the Magician and Menachem and the Egyptian and all that. This sounds a, a kind of accommodationist. And, and indeed, the whole idea of Paul the second founder of Christianity uh, that uh, says he made it into a Hellenistic mystery religion, that's uh, the same sort of thing. But uh, Eisenman is right, it seems to me, and there's plenty of other instances in the text he invokes, but uh, he doesn't think that Jesus didn't exist. He just thinks that uh, Jesus, like uh, his brother James, was a kind of nationalist um and perhaps revolutionary. He stopped short of that. Uh, But um, it's almost irrelevant. There was a Jesus, but he's been co-opted by Gentiles. Uh, And that doesn't mean necessarily that some writer's staff uh, of of Flavian flunkies, I always think of Dick Van Dyke, right? You got uh, Alan... uh, what the heck's his name Uh, the the, the comedian uh, played by Carl Reiner he does a weekly comedy show and so Buddy Sally and Rob are there Uh, writing up the jokes all week. Uh, The idea that you had Philo and Josephus, like Buddy, Sally, and Rob, writing up the Gospels and creating Jesus just seems absurd to me. Uh, It it ignores so much about the Gospels and and requires us to create hypothetical frameworks that are just... uh, just far-fetched in my mind I mean you don't need that much to explain it and there's nothing concrete to suggest any of that all you need to do is to say that whether Paul was responsible or not and that gets into the whole historical Paul mess Christianity can well be imagined as having begun as a messianic movement in uh, in Roman Palestine which uh, had to uh change to survive uh that uh, either it as Raimarus and uh later SGF Brandon suggested it it depoliticized itself and became a harmless religion and tried to convince Rome of that to avoid persecution especially to uh, avoid the uh the hatred with which Jews were uh, um Tarned uh, subsequent to the Jewish wars with Rome, uh, that uh, this happened, and that would explain the depoliticization of Jesus. You don't need any conspiracy, oh, but you don't even need to go that far. You could just say that it began as a any whatever you want to define as as a Jewish messianism, but as it gradually spread among Diaspora Jews around the Mediterranean, the nationalistic part, for the sake of which it was originally propounded, uh, became irrelevant. Uh, And so Jesus took on the the outline of a mystery religion savior. Uh, That's why, like in, in the letters attributed to Paul, there is only one place where Christos could naturally mean the Messiah uh, it's in Romans where it says uh Jews have this uh, uh eternal covenant with God that he's not going to withdraw, and from them hail the Christos does he mean the Messiah? Well, that would make sense, but given his general usage, it's just a personal name that Christ comes from there their uh, ethnos. Uh, and uh, is, is all the other passages uh, where Christos is used, it's just synonymous with Jesus and seems to be a name, Mr. Christ. Uh, and so that means the uh, the uh, if there was any real messianic content to it, it's been long forgotten. And as I like to put it, why would people who were either assimilated jews or or god-fearers pious gentiles attracted to judaism why would they care uh, if if this jesus guy had been the rightful heir to the throne of some postage stamp country uh, across the mediterranean uh, how would it even be relevant? Oh, we've got the true Messiah. What do you? How is that your business? It's like, oh, who's the real heir to the throne of Liechtenstein? <laughs> what the heck? Who cares? And right, unless you're in Liechtenstein, so y- you can easily see how Christianity, whatever it was, had been Hellenized. You don't need to br- bring in Titus and and uh, and Vespasian in this manner and in in uh, with my. Apologies to Joe Atwell, who certainly is a brilliant guy. Uh, It seems to me in his book, Caesar's Messiah, he's just tying himself in knots trying to explain all this stuff. Uh, It just seems to me the theory is more problematical than the problems it seeks to address. Uh, okay, now you know I'm a mythicist. I think it's more likely that there was no historical Jesus, but I just don't think that's how it came about. Um, oh, let's see. Ho, let's see if I can read this. Ho, Karatistos, Sophos, Geek. Uh, the, uh, Ruling wisdom, the mighty royal wisdom uh, of the geek. Thank you. Uh, This is um, Jonathan. One of the reasons why I identify myself as an agnostic atheist is because I just find the proffered proofs for the existence of God to be poorly argued, scanty. And problematic, even though I am fine if one day God or gods decide to show up in my driveway and uh, I'll buy him drinks. A few of these proofs are the famous ontological argument by Anselm and the five ways by Thomas Aquinas, which nowadays I find fallacious, and even if they're true, it won't give the Judeo-Christian god any favors, because it means that the pagan gods also exist or at least one of them, pick Zeus. Uh, My question is, are there any attempts by Christian scholars to prove the existence of Jesus Christ by using philosophical arguments other than the ones from Anselm and Aquinas? Not just mere pandering to purported archaeological and textual evidence like the four Gospels, and the alleged extra-biblical attestations that have been proven as late or forged. Uh, good question. I don't think so. Uh, what you do have is philosophical attempts to make sense of the doctrinal paradoxes associated with Jesus, like the the two natures of Christ, which they har- they they. Uh, not around. what's the word, they agonized over for centuries, right? Is he all God and all man? And if so, how are they related? Is it two natures in one person or two persons? Uh, Is it two natures, one person, but the person comes from the divine side, uh, etc., etc.? Philosophical reasoning went into that for sure. But that isn't trying to, that takes the existence of Jesus Christ for granted, right? It's saying, okay, if we've got that in common, let's answer some more questions. I don't think there is a philosophical attempt to establish the existence of Jesus. And in fact, I'm pretty sure Aquinas would never have done that. I mean, as far as I know, he didn't, but I can't imagine he wouldn't because of what he says in the five proofs for the existence of God. He freely admitted that these, these arguments, as we would call them, proofs, uh, they used to say, uh, they all are uh, aimed at going from the observation of the world as it is today uh, to how it came about. Uh, and uh, And so it has to do with trying to show there must have been a creator. And, uh, and Aquinas admitted, by the way, that uh, John Scotus Ereugena could have been correct, theoretically, that there was never a creation in a point of time, but that the universe could have been dependent upon God. All the way back through eternity, and that dependence would be enough to justify God as Creator. He said, however, biblical revelation rules that out. It's not an absurdity, but we know better because of the Bible. Now, what it settles an, an otherwise in irresolvable philosophical dispute. Well, in the same way, he said, we know about Jesus and uh, the plan of salvation and the Trinity and stuff like that because it is revealed in the Bible. Uh, Or, I guess, reasoning on the basis of it. I doubt if he thought the whole kit and caboodle of the hypostatic union in the Trinity was spelled out, but that the evidence that was, he thought, rightly put together to come up with those formulae, this is revealed by God in the Bible precisely because no one could know it otherwise. There is no observation of the world that would tell you that God must have sent his Son, or indeed any Savior, uh, into the world, that he would have wanted to save us, uh, or that he's part of a trinity and all that. No, no, no. Uh, um, Aristotle reasoned out the existence of, of a prime mover. He didn't need revelation for that. Uh, we wouldn't need it for for, for that. We could follow in the footsteps of Aristotle and conclude that there must have been a first cause, but that's not enough for the Christian deity and he said, you're never going to know that except by the revelation of of the Bible and Jesus and so on, Uh, so um, he would have thought you were looking in the wrong place, now Anselm in the ontological argument also uh, does not pretend uh, to prove that the Christian God exists, uh, he he has a, a really brilliant atonement theory that tries to tie together uh, God, the incarnation, the atonement, and stuff like that, and, and it's it's done by thought. I mean, it's philosophical in a sense, but uh, he wouldn't have thought you could uh, just. Have figured that out without the Bible and the Christian church and all that. Uh, th- these guys drew a pretty uh, strong line between faith and reason. They thought the two would not contradict. They thought they would always turn out to be compatible in the end, but they weren't the same thing. Uh, and they wouldn't have thought that you could prove uh, Christianity um, through reason. Now, that was the role of faith. So glad you asked that. Um. Oh, uh, what else? Oh, yeah, there's another part of this. Another question of mine would be uh, about the writings of Suetonius, especially his life of Claudius, which, you know, you're of the 12 Caesars, right? And the um, chapter by Claudius states, uh, those Jews impelled by Christos, to assiduously cause tumult, Claudius expelled out of Rome. Obviously, this sentence isn't enough to prove that Jesus existed, since the word being used is crestos, C H R E S T O S, which means good, uh, not Christos, the anointed. Uh, here are my questions. By the way, as Frank Zindler pointed out, Uh, they would have been pronounced the same way before there was a great pronunciation shift in Greek. And uh, you you wouldn't... I mean, either would be a viable spelling of the spoken name Christos. Uh, And this is also why in Tacitus we have manuscripts uh, that uh, refer to Christos, others, Christos, uh, practically synonymous back then. Um, Okay, uh okay here's my questions one apologists often insist that Suetonius is speaking about Christians because even during those times up to the current modern greek speaker oh i'm sorry uh this is the zindler argument um hey which is pronounced as as long e uh and i'm not sure i'm seeing this right on the screen uh and I guess Iota, uh sound the same. Is their argument valid? Yeah, Christos and Christos, they wouldn't have differentiated. Yeah, as far as I know, that is correct. Okay. Uh, two, while I'm leaning uh uh let's see, toward uh Believing that the sentence doesn't speak about Christians, I speculate that those people expelled from Rome are followers of Crestus, and the writing of Suetonius in the life of Claudius is authentic. Could it be that he's talking about Gnostics being expelled? In his life of Nero, Suetonius wrote that Christians are involved in a, quote, new and mischievous superstition. I have the feeling that this one, however, is forged, but what's the geek's take on this? Um, Gee, I don't know about a forgery there. Uh, I I think that uh, the Gnostics are not necessarily meant, but once again, it's a question of what distinction would the ancients have drawn? In uh, Kelsus' uh, The True Word, w- to which Origen later wrote his response, contra Kelsum, uh, Kelsum was apparently a Middle Platonist, and he, he said that uh, he, he's describing uh, Christian beliefs, and he Indiscriminately speaks of what we would call orthodox Christian views and Gnostic Christian views and Origen as well. You know, he has no business uh, criticizing us for the stupid things those Gnostic kooks think. Uh, but of course, the problem is: would it have been that clear that they were different decades before? Uh, I I think it would not have been. And uh, so, uh, I mean, gradually, the at least in the eyes of outsiders, uh, to them it may have seemed like, uh, look, I don't care what the difference is if you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian, you're, you're pretty much the same, right? Uh, so we don't really know, but it, it could— um, they could have been Gnostics, but just Christianity, period, was highly suspect. The polemics against Christians, which, by the way, had previously been used against uh, Jews and cynics and all that, namely that there were cannibals, and that they had orgies and all this stuff, it's, it's just stock mudslinging uh, and, uh, and against an unpopular new group. Uh, we saw the same thing with occult hysteria in the late 70s and 80s. Uh, and uh so uh you know i, I don't think that's uh, really the case and i i mean it might have been and again it may have been six or one half a dozen of the other as to whether those people in uh in uh rome that were expelled had anything to do with christianity i'm sort of inclined to think they did not uh, that uh That Crestus being a a fairly common name, which could, by the way, be a trade name inherited because it could mean plasterer or carpenter, but it also meant the good. Uh, Well, there's just no particular reason to think that uh, they're talking about Christ. And based on the notion that he was, uh, I think it was Robert Graves and... Uh, and uh, and Barbara Thiering and others think that Suetonius was attesting the presence of Jesus himself in Rome, that he had survived the crucifixion and went on to preach in Rome. Uh, but uh, that, that seems to me to be, though fascinating, extremely tenuous. Uh, and uh, others have said, well, it does mean Christ, Jesus, but it need mean no more than... Jewish-Christian preaching of the Christian message in Rome occasioned riots among Jews who thought this was offensive. And, uh, you know, is it really a big-ticket item to show that there were Christians uh, in the time of Claudius? You know, that really doesn't help with the uh, historical Jesus uh, issue. Yeah. Uh, From Dr. Barton, he says, I was reading John one forty-two, which says, And when Jesus beheld him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. I came across this looking for a second event in John's account of the Christ's ministry that could correspond to the day the third in John 2.1, and therefore the theory that you pointed out that this reference was to John's reworking of the creation story in Genesis 1. You remember that it says uh, on the first day did this, on the second day uh, wedding in Cana and so forth. And the theory is since John sounds like Genesis in the beginning, uh was there an underlying six or seven day cre- recreation? You know, if any man is in Christ, there's a new creation. Interesting possibility. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, did, did the redactor just not bother continuing to copy the day references? Okay. Um, in, let's see. In the second creation story, Genesis two through three, the second day corresponded to the splitting of, well You mean uh, Don't you mean in the priestly creation account in Genesis two, uh the second day corresponded to the splitting of the waters to pull up in hebrew the firmament that was when i noticed that simon was the son of jonah the name of the prophet who was held in the body of a great beast in the deep Uh, for three days before rising up from the deep the tahome and being spit out on land which i assume is the link here to the name cephas the land the rock although it might not have been the origin of the name cephas i think that it is reasonable to propose that John was making an allusion to the firmament of the second day by naming Simon such. Have you heard any critics make this connection before? Uh, No, I have not. It's it's ingenious, and it might be so. But I have heard that Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, was not attested, at least not commonly, as a uh, Jewish name, just like Nicodemus. I think we know of one, but it was very uncommon as a Hellenized Jewish name. And so um, I believe it was Robert Eisler, uh, followed by others, including, I guess, SGF Brandon and Oscar Coleman, said that uh, Bar-Jonah is not a patronymic, a name son of so-and-so, um, rather, it's it's a an epithet, meaning that Simon was a member of the Bar Jonim or Bar uh which was which means like the terrorists, and this was this was a known sect analogous to the Zealots. And uh, and so that this would mean that you had Simon the Zealot, Judas the Sicarius, and Simon the, the uh, Bar Jonah. Uh, I, I kind of prefer that uh, explanation, but it'd be well worth looking into more whether this is even supposed to be a reference to uh, to Jonah. Uh, I I don't know enough about it to say, but that's where I would uh, tackle it if I were you. And what you say is pretty interesting. Let's see this from The Seeker. The New Testament takes a hell of a lot of talks a hell of a lot about hell and preachers love to preach on it but comparatively little is said about heaven. When I was a kid attending a Southern Baptist church my faith began to founder on questions about heaven. When I asked what we'd be doing when we get to heaven the answer was usually we'll sing God's praises for all eternity. Forgive me for saying so, but that seemed dull, to say the least, even as a child. By the way, there's uh, some... Oh, uh, what is this movie? Uh, darn it. Uh, Bedazzled, is it? I'm not sure. Uh, where uh, you got uh, Dudley Moore, one of the unfunniest comedians uh, that ever was spawned, and Peter, somebody or other, sheesh, uh, at least one of them plays uh, an angel fallen from heaven in some... Or, or no, he's the devil, and somebody asks him, why did you fall from heaven? And he says, well, let me put it this way. Uh, If you're up there, and you're spending eternity saying, my hat's off to you, you're so great, it gets kind of old, kind of quick. Uh, Yeah, so... Um. Yeah, others might say, back to the question, others might say God will finally answer all the questions we had here on Earth. That, that's what you're going to be doing in heaven. Okay, I could envision a heavenly debrief up front, but regardless of how long that took, even if it const- consisted of a replay of history in real time, whether it's 6,000 years or 14 billion, depending on your viewpoint, as the song says, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. There's still plenty of time to kill. Uh, To ancient people, heaven must have seemed like a great deal, seeing as most of them lived their lives in grinding poverty that required them to work from dawn till dark just to stay alive. Any prospect of respite from work must have seemed parad... parad... I can never... paradisical? Paris... like paradise... By contrast, life today is so much better that heaven is looking pretty shoddy. The idea of singing God's praise for all eternity pales in comparison to what we can enjoy in the here and now. I can't picture an eternity without good food, Uh, beer, wine, coffee, jokes, conversation, science, pets, books, movies, martial arts, friendship, romance, sleep, sex, or music apart from the eternal singing of God's praises, among numerous other things that make life worth living can you supply any further insight into the ancients concept of heaven well I think of uh, what Luke has Jesus say about uh, this woman has been passed from short-lived husband to short-lived husband seven of them had been her husband if they all rise from the dead, who's she going to be married to? And uh, Luke has Jesus say, well, don't worry, nobody's going to be married in heaven. They'll all be like uh, angels, neither marrying nor being given in marriage. Now, does that mean they're going to be celibate or that they're going to be sexless? Well, presumably sexless, since there's no need for procreation to populate the world anymore. But then again, Adam and Eve were supposed to be uh, celibate and uh, could have sex and did. And think of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So, I don't know. But uh, think also of 1 Corinthians 15. Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven, neither shall the perishable inherit the imperishable. Which is why, at the resurrection, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. No flesh. No flesh. Uh, So, um, what you're saying is that, uh, yeah, there are no fleshly, temporal occupations in heaven. And that's supposed to be good? Well, I think the, quote, answer to that is is that uh, sort of half Augustine, half Schleiermacher. Augustine said that God lives in a timeless, eternal present, and presumably so will we, once we cast off the confining fetters of the flesh. And so everything will be an eternal now. There will not be an ongoing duration. We will be beyond temporality. Uh, And uh, Schleiermacher similarly said there is no way to even imagine what uh, post-mortem salvation could be like, because by process of elimination, you take away all these things that are part of the fleshly existence where you got left, like a Buddhist parable, uh, this Tadpole, still in the water, is talking to his dad, who by now is an adult frog and an amphibian who can live underwater or on land. The tadpole says, Dad, uh, what's it like up there living on dry land? And the frog says son i wish i could tell you but i can't uh every word every concept you have is predicated on being underwater there are no words you would know no concepts that could begin to describe what it's like in the open air just wait you'll find out as i did uh, I love that parable because uh, the Buddhists said the same thing that it's going to be nothing like this, but don't worry, Nirvana, even though it means extinction, is not absolute annihilation. It's just that you can't conceive of what it would be till till it happens. Uh, and uh, all this adds up, in my opinion, to Buddhist Nirvana or. Uh, Hindu uh, Samadhi or whatever where all semblance of human existence and human personality, human individuality is done away with Uh, and uh, to me that you might as well be dead you know what is the uh, what's the point of that Uh, and uh, I, I as I know me will be long gone and, in fact, this leads right into another one from uh, J.B. Uh, Kranger, or Kranger or is it J.B.K. Ranger? I'm not sure. I don't quite get that one. I'm sorry. He says, I was listening to your March 20th podcast from minute 40 to 43. You discussed eliminating the ego, that it. it leaves one dead for all intents and purposes. Boy, is this good luck to have these two together. You also said there's nothing after we die. You might consider another angle. Years ago, a French scientist came to the conclusion that nothing is born and nothing dies. <laughs> Buddhists have been saying this for 2,600 years, presumably, without the. Awful, phony accent. You briefly mentioned, at minute 35, about real and absolute truth. That is important to consider in this conversation about eliminating ego. From the way I understand it, the same number of atoms exist in the universe that have always existed. Matter simply breaks apart and recombines endlessly. On the relative level, my father was born in 1936, but died in... 2011. In the ultimate reality, the atom combination and circumstances that was my father was temporary and fleeting. Uh, The end of the Diamond Sutra, the world's oldest printed book, may say at best, "'So shall you view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream.' this earth will be devoid of water in 2 billion years in 2 billion years and crash into the sun in 6 million what will happen then those atoms will simply recombine into something else uh, you can't get something from nothing that is why i think the idea of a creator god falls apart uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, has tons of YouTube videos on this subject if anyone is interested. He says there is no death, there is no birth, but on the other hand, there is no no death, nor is there uh, no birth either. That uh, thick, Knot Han, does a much better job explaining it than me. But that's my lame attempt at it. I realize you may not choose to put this on the Bible Geek podcast, but indeed I have. But I love the show. Thank you. This is this. Woo! Wait a minute. Did I misattribute the last one to J.B.K. Ranger? Sorry about that, because uh, this one comes from Brent in Tennessee. Or is that the next one? Good God, I'm confused. Anyway, uh to me, well, of course he's saying it's it's not birth or no birth. It's not death or no death. You can't confine it to these half truths. Um, it's kind of like the Nirvana thing. Look, it's not. Uh, absolute annihilation, though it's nothing like this earthly life. Uh, it was like the Trinity, right? Uh, there are only bad answers to this thing. Uh, it's a mystery, so no, uh, nothing you can wrap your mind around could come close to explaining it. So don't try, right? It's that sort of thing. Well, I can respect that, but if you're pursuing this uh, this approach that says the atoms combine and recombine. In Buddhist terms, the skandhas, the component parts of the seeming individual are changing and shifting and being replaced from one life to another so that there is no Atman, uh, holding it all together. To me, this, uh, this is, offers no hope. It's just like saying, uh, you can, uh, Well, it's no different from uh, uh, Plato who says that the matter that composes you is temporarily holding together to mimic one of the eternal forms, but matter is unstable and shifting and changing and decaying so that eventually it will not be able to hold that form any longer and will collapse uh, and Aristotle agrees with him on this, as I understand, that for a while, um, the matter will will occupy the form, which is uh, what he says the soul is, uh, and but it won't stay together, and it will just be there and will become part of another formed uh, entity at some point surely you see what's missing from that, right? The the individual me is not this stuff that I'm made of. Uh, It is the particular combination of it. I mean, I don't believe there is an immortal ghost inside. I mean, there could be. How the heck would I know? But I don't see any any real reason to believe that it seems to me that thought is itself chemical in nature somehow and uh, that uh, once the brain dies that's the end of it now that doesn't mean it's going to wink out into nothingness uh, th- but the, per- the the material that makes me up it won't, it will recombine um, perhaps into a donkey or a, a gorilla or a jellyfish or, or, or who knows what the heck maybe not not even alive right but uh the uh the, the particular combination of brain cells etc that gives rise to this particular individual well that that leaves when the the structure breaks down uh so to me the the buddhist idea uh is is cold comfort to the point of just being cold and not at all comfortable and Buddhism is sublime in so many ways I love Buddhism but I must admit this seems to me not to be uh, the the answer this is a poor substitute for uh, the notion of going to heaven and having fun though of course I don't buy that either it's just as Freud would say uh, obvious wish fulfillment well okay that's it for today's exciting episode of the Bible Geek I next time I guess I'll get through some more of these questions but I would like to try out on you a paper I wrote uh, for an upcoming Johnny Coleman conference I no longer teach there but I was tapped as a speaker Um, and uh, it's uh, called uh, uh, Republicans and Sinners did Jesus have political opinions and this kind of bears on what I said at the very beginning of the podcast about the politicization of the Bible today on both sides. Okay, well I will see you then and do think about donating uh, to make a bigger, better Bible geek program and so forth. So sayonara. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?